The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a show that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview a high-profile public figure. In each show, I also highlight an exceptional company, organization, charity, or even an individual that does great work in the community. I have two great interviews for you today after the headlines. The first one is with the former governor of Vermont, Howard Dean, followed by filmmaker Juliana Brudick, whose anti-gun feature documentary, which just came out, uh, it's called Disarm Hate, has been getting great reviews and making a lot of buzz. Here are a few headlines. House Democrats said Sunday that they are ramping up their investigation of the U.S. Postal Service and as Democratic leaders, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, called on Postmaster General Louis DeJoy and Chairman of the U.S. Postal Service Board of Governors Robert Duncan to testify. The leader said in a statement that they want the officials to appear at a hearing on August 24th to discuss what they call recent sweeping and dangerous operational changes at the post office that are slowing the mail and jeopardizing the integrity of the election. DeJoy has contributed more than $1.2 million to the Trump Victory Fund and millions more to the Republican Party organizations and candidates, according to Federal Election Commission records. He was also in charge of fundraising for the Republican National Convention. COVID-19 does not seem to slow down, so I want to go over some numbers as of this morning. So far, worldwide, there have been 21 million or 21.5 million people confirmed to have been infected with the coronavirus. 13.5 million have recovered, and 772,000 people have died. In the U.S., 5.37 million people uh, are confirmed to have had the coronavirus, and 169,000 people have died. In California, confirmed cases is at 662,000. 11,229 people have died in California. In L.A. County, confirmed cases are 221,000 and 5,245 people have died. The last one was L.A. County. Protests took place across Belarus on Sunday as tensions over last weekend's disputed presidential election continued to mount and Russia pledged support for incumbent Alexander Lukashenko. Opponents say that the election was rigged to disguise the fact that Lukashenko has lost public support. Tens of thousands of people protested over the weekend, and they still are in Belarus, which is, of course, a former uh, Soviet republic. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to sort of focus on the egregious and frankly disgusting attacks from the right-wing media against not only Democrats and, of course, progressive Democrats, but when the Democrat happens to be a person of color or a woman. 
in Senator Kamala Harris's case, she is both a person of color and she is a woman. So the criticism, the attacks, the name calling, it's been really disgusting. And I'm, I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised because that's how they operate. And what a shame. So I want to go over some of the sort of the nasty, disgusting suggestions and some of them just direct comments that have been made and address them because I am thrilled that uh, Vice President Joe Biden has picked Senator Kamala Harris because I can't fathom anyone else to be more qualified. So as soon as uh, the announcement was made, of course, the first one came from Fox's Fox quote-unquote news, Sean Hannity, who uh, called uh, Senator Harris radical and far left, which is absurd. Most people know Senator Harris to be a moderate. In fact, New York Times has called her a moderate. She's very pragmatic. So that's really absurd. That's Fox's ammo, and they keep doing that. Eric Trump, like anyone really cares about what he says, but he suggested that she's a weak choice. Oh, really, Eric Trump? She's a weak choice? Let's go over the list. She is, or she was a presidential uh, candidate herself. She is a senator. She has a very strong background in law and public service. She's brilliant. She can run the country any minute on her own. So she's weak. That's absurd. That's really absurd. I'm not, again, not, not that anyone's listening to Eric Trump. So let's move on. Trump, now this is the most egregious. Trump told Fox Business that Harris was a, and I quote, mad woman because she was so angry during the Kavanaugh hearing. Uh, he also called her mean. It's so unpresidential, so embarrassing for a president to speak like that. Who is Donald Trump to call anyone mean or nasty or angry? He's a lunatic. He's an absolute lunatic. Senator Harris was not mean or angry during the Kavanaugh hearings. She asked direct, she asked direct questions. She wanted to know the answers and she was firm as she should have been. But of course, Republicans don't like that because, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things they'd rather just um, skim over and move forward. So bottom line is this. <laughs> oh, there was one more actually that I should talk about. Now Newsweek, I don't know why they did this, but they did. Newsweek ran an op-ed by John Eastman, who's a law professor at Chapman University, arguing that Senator Harris may not actually be a citizen. Okay, so here is birtherism, conspiracy theories uh, up again from Republicans, uh, when in fact, uh, Senator Harris was born in Oakland, California. So their tactic is to constantly attack people. And if they can just put a little bit of doubt and suspicion in people's head, and they think that they have gotten somewhere. So both President Obama and Senator Kamala Harris, who are a person of color, have had to deal with this kind of birtherism, conspiracy nonsense all over again. And the bottom line, it's sexist, it's racist, and it's misogynistic. And we've got to call it out and be blunt about it and 
turn it back on them and tell them exactly what we think of their actions. We won't stand for it, and it's got to stop. So we have to get blunt because Republicans are very loud, so we need to be heard. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Howard Dean was the governor of Vermont from 1991 to 2002. He ran for president in 2004. In 2005, he became the chair of the Democratic National Committee, which lasted until 2009. Also in 2004, he created the political action committee, Democracy for America. Since last year, Governor Dean has been leading data exchange, a system that allows the Democratic Party and outside political groups to share their data for the first time without running into campaign finance laws. Governor Dean, thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great, especially talking to you. Been a big fan of yours for many years since you were governor of Vermont. And uh, well, thank you. Yeah, and I have to say, and I hope that I don't bring up unpleasant things, but I remember watching that uh, that famous speech of yours uh, when you were. Yeah, I have a scream speech. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to call it anything, but. Oh, that's fun. It was, you know, when you were running for president in 2004, and you gave this impassioned speech, and I remember before before there was any commentary about it, and I thought, oh my God, there's a politician that has like blood going through their veins, <laughs> someone who's not a robot, and of course. You, know, you got a lot of uh, flack for that, and I just didn't understand it. I, to this day, I don't understand it. But I think that's why I became a big fan of yours, because I thought, this is the kind of elected official that we need, people who are passionate, people who are coming from the heart, and not, you know, Mitch McConnell. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I hate to say this, the speech was basically hyped up by the cable channels who didn't bother to put in the crowd noise. Um, but... Uh, I, I gave that speech again at the 2016 convention, which is really a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been actually um, reading a lot of your tweets lately, and uh, I love the way you do commentary and uh, sort of you, how blunt and uh, direct you are. And there's, <laughs> there's, there's humor in them, too. <laughs> Thank you. A lot of humor. So let me start by this, you know. <laughs> There's so much going on, and it changes on a daily basis. And, of course, you are an authority on so many different things. You know, we just had Kamala Harris be announced as the choice for VP with uh, Vice President Biden. We have, of course, COVID-19 that's been going on for six, seven months now. And we have this attack on the U.S. Postal Service. How do you reflect on everything that's gone on into 2020 and where we are at now? Well, obviously, there are a huge number of problems. Um, the The economy is a disaster because of COVID, and COVID is a disaster because of Trump, because he has no idea what he's doing, it's, which we, is pretty obvious from the day he took office. Um, and we got to get him out of there. And it's incredibly important that everybody vote. And I, I, Trump is clearly trying to stop that. But... Uh, you know, America was a great place because ordinary people got to decide who their leaders were, and Trump doesn't. And so, you know, that's the struggle. And we just got to get everybody to vote, and then we got to make sure everybody votes, gets their vote counted. Yeah, and that's a good point. And we've, we've sort of been preparing for this for a long time and saying vote blue no matter who and getting people to register and all that. But all of a sudden, because of COVID and how uh, mailing ballots are going to be so instrumental 
we're seeing this a very obvious attack on the Postal Service. I mean, President Trump pretty much admitted that he was trying to suppress votes. And it's so egregious. And I think most Americans feel kind of powerless. I agree. Well, that's what Trump does. Trump believes that he should have all the power and nobody shouldn't. And, you know, when you look at his rallies, they really are, um, they really remind me of Hitler's rallies in a way. He just gets people sucked into this stuff. And, you know, he, his, his MO is nothing is my fault, nothing is your fault, it's all somebody else's fault. And that somebody else is black or Jewish or gay, and that's what he does. Uh, and this is the worst kind, he's the worst leader we ever, he's by far the worst president we ever had. Yeah. Uh, because he's the most corrupt president we've ever had, and it's not even a close call. And the way to get rid of people like that is to vote and make sure your votes are counted. And I, my, I believe that in the long run, other countries have gotten rid of people like this by voting. And in the long run, the idea is to pile up such a big margin that he can't fix the vote. And that's what we're going to have to do. Yeah. I love that you said that because one time I was talking to some friends and I said, we need to like take 5% like a cushion. We have to have a 5% cushion in whatever we think the vote should end because of all the different types of frauds that they're going to try to pull. But going back to like what's happening with the U.S. Postal Service, should we really be in fear and try to do something now as opposed to wait for to see what happens in November? Well, we are doing things now. I mean, we're suing. The, the Democrats have a $25 billion in the next COVID bill for the post office. Um, and just getting it out in the press is, is is really important. So it's not like nobody's doing anything about this. This is going to be okay. If, our, if we vote, we're going to win, but we have to vote. Right. You know, and hopefully, you know, the Senate has been another problem of House passing uh, bills and then the Senate, which is controlled by Republicans, sort of uh, stalling it or uh, just getting rid of it. It's been another frustration. Yeah, but I think there's a very good chance we'll take the Democrats, we'll take the Senate. Uh, and that's why another reason we have to vote, particularly in states where there are closed Senate races. I mean, there are about 13 states where the Democrats really have a chance. In some of those states, we haven't had a chance for decades. Right. We have a chance in Texas. We have a chance in Georgia. We have a chance in, in uh, Kansas, which hasn't elected a Democratic senator for since, I don't know, the 1920s or something. So uh, Iowa is another one. So it's not just uh, Maine and North Carolina and places that everybody's talking about. It's places that are pretty red. And those, you know, the thing is, red states want go good governance, too. And what they see in Trump is this embarrassment. And they don't want that either. Yeah. I like, I like, you're very optimistic. <laughs> I like that. Well, it's not whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic. If you give up, Trump wants you to give up. Mm -hmm. If you do that, then we've done, the country's done. So you have a choice. You can give up and live in a country that's not worth living in, or you can fight back. And it's a very easy fighting back. All you have to do is vote right. and make your friends vote. Right. And I'm glad that you said that, that all we need to do is vote and things are being done for what's happening with the U.S. Postal Service, including the lawsuit and $25 million that's in, in the bill. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Governor Howard Dean. So let's go back to um, Senator Kamala Harris as the choice for vice president. How do you feel about that? I think it was a great choice. It's a safe choice. She's experienced. She's been on the presidential campaign. She's less likely to make some 
blooper that people say things and you know they turn out turns out that everybody pounces on it she's polished I don't agree with all the things she did when she was a prosecutor, but, you know, you, you don't get to pick the vice presidential candidate. Joe Biden gets to do that. I think she'll be excellent. Could she step in and run the country on day one? Yes, she could. So I think it was a good choice. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree when you said, you know, she's not likely to make some big blooper. And I thought about Sarah Palin. I can right, see right. Russia from my house. You were the, you're a former chair of the Democratic National Committee. And I believe you still have a role with them, correct? Oh, uh, no. No, okay. Cause you were... I don't. I am running a private organization that is building a, a list uh, with all the democratically in inclined voters on it. But uh, I'm not right. with the DNC. The DNC is not part of that. Uh, I mean, the DNC is cooperating to the extent they're allowed to. Right. Uh, but it's independent. Are you referring to uh, data exchange? Yes. Okay. I've read a lot about it, but I'll let you tell our listeners what uh, data exchange is about. Okay, it's a little complicated, but basically um, the Republicans plunked down $250 million about eight years ago, and they have a big central data repository. Well, Democrats can't do that. First of all, we don't have $250 million, and second of all, everybody's concerned about their own data. We're... We're a diffuse party. Republicans are very good at winning campaigns because campaigns are really like military operations, and they're top-down. The problem is they're terrible at governing because they don't like anybody's ideas, and it's top-down, and there are plenty of good ideas that are not at the top, particularly now. So the Democrats function differently. We don't run, Our campaigns are not as well organized, uh, and they're diffuse, but the way we run government, we look at all the options and we think about it, and we, we're open to taking us where the facts take us, not based on ideology. So the DDX is based on the idea that everybody owns their own data. We don't own any of it. We simply have a mechanism for shifting it back and forth between people who may not directly be working together, but all have very interesting and sufficient data that will help us uh, identify voters who are likely to vote for us. So that the data, nobody knows where the data is coming from when they're receiving it, except us. And if we don't tell anybody, this is how the FEC has ruled, it's not an illegal campaign contribution. So we don't tell people where the data is coming from. But you can get a list of all the people who care about women's rights to choose you, in any location. We can get people who are environmental voters. We can get people who have registered, people who haven't registered, how people are likely to vote, because that data exists. It doesn't exist in one place, which is what the Republicans could do with $250 million, but it really, it does exist. And what we do is facilitate the exchange of that data among all our members, which are all the organizations that are likely to vote Democratic, environmental groups, unions, uh, uh, you know, women's, women's groups, and so forth and so on. Wow, that's such an important thing, and I'm so glad that you stepped up and are doing that. Will it be, it's, it's already in operation, correct? It is. Uh, we're in most of the big swing states. Our goal is to get in every state. I don't think we'll get there that there this year, but I think we'll have it up and running. It's up and running right now in Florida, North Carolina, Michigan, Arizona. Um, I can't remember the other, a few other states. And um, it'll be up and running well before Election Day in all of the states that have competitive Senate races and all the competitive presidential states. And candidates can look at this in real time 
and adjust accordingly. Well, it doesn't work quite like that. No. Uh, okay. The way it goes through the parties. Okay. So I don't want to get into complicated election law because it's just that we could spend the rest of the time we have talking about it and it would make people's eyes glaze over. But basically, we go through the local parties which are allowed to talk and to work with the candidates. So the candidates usually would go to the state party or the DNC to get the information, which we might get from some from other sources, and they won't know where they come from, but we will. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Governor Howard Dean. Okay, well, that's another sort of positive and, and thing for people to really think about and know that it's happening. Well, I think it made the difference in Kentucky. We were up, we went up and running at Kentucky 10 days before the governor's election and found them, found them 14,000 votes they didn't know anything about. They were going to vote for the Democrats. Wow. And the margin was 5,100 in the race. So this is not going to this is not going to take a state that we're, we're 10 points behind and suddenly we're going to be able to win. Right. It will take a state and give us a 2% margin where before we were down by 1%. Okay. Well, hopefully, I don't know what's going to happen, but the Kentucky uh, Senate race, hopefully they will decide not to reelect Mitch McConnell. Well, that would be good for the country and good for Kentucky. Yeah, absolutely. I want to ask you, what are the stories in politics or just current events or, or even individuals that are a little ignored or you don't hear about, but I'm sure from your vantage point, you know about it. What are we not talking about? Well, mostly we don't talk about good news because the journalists aren't set up to do that. They don't. They think bad news sells, and they may be right. But we don't talk about all the people in their communities that are trying to make the place better. Right. And there are even some communities that are pretty red where that's happening. Um, you know, not all Republicans are awful, uh, just the ones in Washington. So, you know, Americans are still Americans, and they're mostly want to better life for their children and better opportunities. And, and at a local level, they're mostly willing to work together to do those kinds of things. Yeah, and, and we've seen this a lot with COVID-19. And by the way, what do you think about the handling of, of course, Washington, D.C. and Trump have handled COVID-19 disaster, you know, just like it's been a disaster. But how do you think that states are handling it or just where we are as a nation do we need another shutdown, you think, or are we okay with our trajectory? That's, you know, that's hard to say. There probably is some state-by-state state variation. Um, uh, we're, we're, in Vermont, where we interestingly have a Republican governor, we've done a great job. We have the lowest prevalence in the country. Um, and partly that's because we're rural, and partly that's because we went into a total shutdown. We've been easing carefully and slowly up. We don't, we're not very ideological here. We're incredibly practical people, regardless of our party. So we very carefully, as, as the governor says, turned the spigot carefully, slowly, without getting too far ahead of ourselves. The problem is a lot of the Republican governors, now there's some Republicans have done a very good job, including some I don't agree with on any other issue, like Ohio. Mike DeWine did a really good job. He's really conservative. Right. But a lot of the Republican governors, especially the ones that are afraid of Trump, uh, Georgia, Florida, Texas, Arizona, I mean, these people are doing a terrible job, and their caseload shows it, yeah. because they don't do anything that public health people say, they just do what they have to do to please Trump. There's not a big future in that in this country, and there's not a big future of that in the Republican Party, but they think there is, and their performance has been disgraceful because they don't care what the science is. But in those places, regardless of being a Democrat or a Republican, where governors have 
followed the science. They've done a good job, and my state's one of them. Yeah, I of course, Florida and Georgia especially have been a disaster because of what they did. I want to ask you your opinion. When COVID-19 and its response uh, began first few months, uh, Governor Newsom of California was sort of a superstar. But lately, there's been some mixed reviews on what he's doing. What do you think about what's happening in California? Well, I'm not an expert on what's going on in California, but it seems to me that the problem is not Governor Newsom. The problem is the people who all decided to go to the beach and take their masks off <laughs> against his views. Right. So if you're going to run around bars and get drunk and stay within six, two feet of everybody and breathe all over them all night long, uh, you're probably going to get COVID. Right. Now, you cannot blame that on the governor. Right. So before we go, because I, I know you, you, you need to run, I want to ask you if there's anything that uh, I should have brought up, anything you want to add. No, I just, I mean, all, all I'd say to your listeners is, as Bill Clinton once told me, stay sunny. We're going to get through this. It's, we're going to require hard work. There are going to be some hard times, some very discouraged times. America has always done well when we hang together and do the right thing. And um, don't vote by party, vote by uh, principle. And if you do that, we're going to be fine. But do vote. If you don't vote, then you get what you deserve. Well said. Governor Dean, it's been a privilege. I'm very grateful, and thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was the former governor of Vermont, Howard Dean, course, a former presidential candidate, a doctor, uh, just a brilliant man, a brilliant American in politics and beyond. Thank you, Governor Dean, for your time. The Blunt Post with Vic. Juliana Brudick is an award-winning screenwriter and filmmaker whose career started with MTV before she went on to ABC, then NBC's Mark Burnett Productions, and later she worked for Steven Spielberg's Hamblin Entertainment. Her new feature documentary film, Disarm Hate, has received rave reviews. It is narrated by the iconic actor Harvey Firestein. The film is about nine LGBTQ activists who travel cross-country on an RV from L.A. to D.C. to attend an anti-gun rally after the 2016 Pulse nightclub massacre. Juliana Brudick, thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic. How are you doing? It's my pleasure. It's exciting to have you on to talk about your very well-received documentary, Disarm Hate, which has been out for a couple of weeks, I believe. Yes, Disarm Hate has been out since June 23rd. We released it in conjunction with 51 years of Stonewall, 50 years of Los Angeles Pride, and the four-year anniversary of the Pulse Massacre in Orlando. Right. And so the film, the documentary film is, and correct me whenever I'm wrong, it's about nine uh, LGBTQ activists uh, who, who travel cross country from L.A. to D.C. to participate in a, in a rally called Disarm Hate, which is about gun control and gun laws and such, which is obviously an important part of what happened at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. So can you tell a little bit of the synopsis of the film? Yes, I mean, you covered it great. It is about nine LGBTQ activists from L.A. that take a sojourn to the Disarm Hate Rally in D.C. Where the, see, in the, the Disarm Hate Rally, it's the intersection between gun violence, 
gun reform and against LGBTQ, how, how they intersect. Because violence against LGBTQ and queer people has always been known, but I really had to research and dig deep about how much uh, the hate crimes, especially ones involving a gun, really affect the LGBT community. And, and on this journey, we talked about this, we visited sites where LGBTQs were shot down, were killed, murdered uh, brutally, and we made it all the way to the Disarm Hate Rally, and we reflected on our journey. Yeah, I really enjoyed the film, and I and I thought it was so it was so dense in a good way and so layered with information and topics, and it showed the true rainbow of the LGBT community, and that we're not all the same. We don't all think alike, and we do disagree sometimes. And just going back to what you said about the gun violence and and violence against the LGBT community, you know, it's important to note that trans women, especially trans women of color have been, especially recently, been sort of targeted and have been victims of so much gun violence. And so much of that happens on a daily basis to trans women across the country that we don't really hear about. It's not, it's not on the news. So, you know, you covered that too. And I, there's so many things about the film that I enjoyed. And so tell me about the process. Like, what led you to create this film from, from inception to, you know, the storytelling that you did, which was beautiful. Um, thank you, Vic. Um, what happened was the Pulse massacre happened. It was June 11th, June 12th, um, and we scored in, and that was Gay Pride Sunday for us in Los Angeles, and it was just a harrowing day as the news flooded in, and we were on the streets at Pride and during the parade, and there were police there, and there was a bomb threat, and Please call me back. Well, he called me back and he was like, I don't have any money. Oh, uh, 
such a great character in the film too he brings in so much warmth and authentic just his authentic self yes and he he was so passionate about the cause and it made me fired up and i was like well i'm gonna go film this guy and then i thought well that's not exciting to show me you know traveling cross-country filming this guy i thought let me take people and then I chose the nine, um, which is a little bit of a process. But once I got them, we got in an RV and we went to the rally. And the rest is documented in the film. Yeah, of course, I've seen the film. But any highlights, challenges on your cross-country travel? Well, for me, I think about what is the emotional climax for me, which is probably... You know, and I don't want to give it away, but there uh, there is an emotional climax, and then it's preceded by um, a visit with Gays Against Guns. And after all this talk about gun violence and all this pro-gun, because, you know, I don't believe in propaganda. I don't think anybody wants to sit and watch propaganda. I went to uh, what I feel are fair sides, both pro-gun and anti-gun, on our journey to disarcate, we did visit both. We shot guns ourselves. We wanted to know what it was like. A lot of people on the cast and crew had never shot a gun before. Anyway, when we finally got to the Gays Against Guns, which was right before the rally, they tied up everything, and for me, that is the most, the information from Kevin Hartford uh, the co-founder of Gays Against Guns, for me, that is the cherry on top. I mean, he puts the argument, both pro and anti-right, you know, right in the spotlight. And you, it's as clear as wasabi to the brain. <laughs> I like that. So that, that's, that's my takeaway. Otherwise, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people are like, Jules, this is a heavy subject, but I want you to know, it is a very entertaining, lighthearted in parts, and it, you know the message is there, but it's not a slog or a dirge like you would think a movie about gun violence would be. This is the Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and I'm speaking to Juliana Brudick, filmmaker and screenwriter, about her new feature documentary called Disarm Hate. Absolutely. There are a lot of beautifully emotional parts that are fun. There are a lot of fun clips and you just see a journey of the of these nine people going across the country and the experiences they have. It's very well done. I want to ask you about your take or your perspective on where we are with gun safety. Do you think taking a back seat this year because of COVID-19, rightfully so, as well as the elections? Oh, it's a great question. I'm so glad you asked me. I think right now we've put a pause on a lot of social issues because of the pandemic. Um, the pandemic is first and foremost, um, uh, you know, and 
the Justice for George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests raging across the country are also first and foremost in our mind. And so when we are dealing with those two things, we have forgotten what role gun violence plays in our country. Also, the fact that mass shootings in schools have become non-existent because children are in schools. However, if you look in the inner cities, and these are you know big conversations to still have because in a lot of marginalized communities, people are still you know shooting. There's still tons of problems and and violence, and it's been exacerbated by uh, unemployment, by pandemic, by frustration. So that is sometimes when when the shootings in school stop, though people stop talking about the uh, the guns. And I urge people to remember that this is not just an issue that's going to go away. As soon as we open things back up, and, and even if we don't, I mean, a mass shooting can happen anywhere. And, and as, as people become more and more disenfranchised and frustrated. It, I, I fear that another one could happen right around the corner and that we have to target this issue regardless if it's in the news. So this is something that I believe needs to be addressed. It is our, I think, one of our biggest problems as a nation. And hopefully once we get closer to the elections, it will be one of the major topics discussed by Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Harris. It's, uh, you know, it's killing people and it's kind of a silent killer because most of us don't hear about it on a daily basis. And even a lot of the police brutality, uh, it's due to the police and law enforcement using weapons against uh, the American people and victimizing them. Yes, and the fact that we, other countries like Britain, are looking at us and, and, and seeing that you know, they don't have these same problems, and it's clear that the guns is just not, you're not able to get a hold of them with the sheer speed and um, agency that we are able to in this country. You know, when I was talking to somebody yesterday about, you know, all the shootings that go on in Chicago, and how in Indiana you can get guns so easily, and that's why in Chicago, right in those cities that are affected most by gun violence, it's it's just miles outside of where you can illegally, legally purchase guns with speed. Um, you know, and then just yesterday, federal courts struck down a California ban on high-capacity magazines. And this was reported yesterday, and you and I live in California. Right. It's like these things that have happened, it's like an everyday battle. We don't know what goes on behind the scenes, but NRA has blocked so much progress, so much supporting um it's it's about the dollars, and we've got to keep fighting. And people say you'll never fix, there will never be gun control in, in the United States, and I disagree. Yeah, there definitely will be if all of us do our part and we keep talking about it. Of course, you did a lot more than talking. You made this incredible film that I hope uh, everyone watches, and even people who are pro-gun, whatever that means, they watch it too, just to see a, a perspective. I want to um, ask you, just so I don't forget, the film is out. For our listeners, where can they watch it? I know Amazon is one place they can watch it. Yes, um, you can watch it on Amazon, Voodoo, Fandango, Google, Microsoft, um, Comcast, and Cox, 
on demand, YouTube rentals. I think that's that's everything. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and I'm speaking to Juliana Brudick, filmmaker and screenwriter, about her new feature documentary called Disarm Hate. Wow. Okay. That's great. Because we're all kind of, a lot of us are um, looking for the next best thing to watch. And this is definitely, should be on top of everyone's list. It's a beautiful story. It's, as you said, it's entertaining. It's not just a message, but it's it's an actual entertaining film. A lot of colorful people on the RV going from uh, LA to DC. And I really don't do it justice. I mean, if you could a really good chunk of the queer community. I mean, they're very diverse too. They are diverse from ethnic background and age and uh, even viewpoints uh, and sexual orientation, gender identity. So you definitely got yourself a, a cast of very diverse people, which makes the film even more textured and interesting. Yeah, we have Dusty. She's a Navy, a former vet. I mean, a vet, former Navy, and um, I think she's pro-gun as the movie begins. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of interesting characters, and, and my God, like, I, I just adore each and every one of them. Well, tell us how, if people want to get in touch with you uh, or just want to join the social media for the film, what those handles are. Oh, yes, I would love anyone who sees this film, I would love to hear from you. I would love to have a conversation um, it's supposed to be a conversation starter. Please contact me at Doc to Disarm Hate. That's the Instagram. Doc to Disarm Hate. That's the Facebook. And um, the Twitter is Disarm Hate. I would love to hear from you. Please, please reach out. I've gotten so much great mail, and it just it helps to understand where we are as a community right now because I think we're in really interesting times we're at the line of demarcation like i think where we've gone we're going somewhere new in the upcoming year november 3rd and beyond i think as a community we have new places to travel hopefully it's a renaissance for america in many different ways Absolutely. 
Um, Juliana, if somebody wanted, if they watched the film and wanted to review it, where, where can they review the film? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me. I was hoping people would, would do their reviews on Amazon. Um, we need reviews on Amazon, IMBD, and Letterboxd. Letterboxd.com, and that's the cinephile site where people review movies. But there's been a couple we'd love more. Fantastic. One more time, Juliana, if you don't mind telling us where the film is being screened, all the different uh, platforms. Absolutely. Um, this for me is being screened on Amazon Prime, Vudu, Fandango Now, Microsoft Store, Google Play, YouTube Rentals, and in-demand Comcast and Cox. So Comcast and Cox are on cable. You can watch it on your TV. Fantastic. Thank you for that. And Juliana, good luck uh, with this film, uh, even though you don't need it. And on your next projects, thank you so much for being on The Blunt Post with Vic. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Vic, it's been so lovely. And I just love what you do. So thank you for having me. And I look forward to people reaching out about Disarmed Hate. And uh, thanks again. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. The Blunt Post with Vic. Today's quote is from the brilliant Noam Chomsky about the U.S. Postal Service. He said, there are major efforts being made to dismantle Social Security, the public schools, and the post office. Anything that benefits the population has to be dismantled. Efforts against the U.S. Postal Service are particularly surreal. That was Noam Chomsky. The Blunt Post with Vic. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jerami, that's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.